Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Learner's Corner podcast. This is the podcast for lifelong learners where they learn from anything and everything. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is, in fact, Todd Hicksonball, a.k.a. the Todd Father. We have a great episode for you today. Today, uh, actually, I was gonna, I was getting ready to say we. It is not a we today. It is a me because Todd, unfortunately, wasn't able to Well, you know, I was probably doing something cool. I know, dude. Like, we have been, it's just been a little bit crazy. I mean... We've been in a string of interviews to where it's either been you or me. Nah. We're just going to keep it going. Whatever. We're a team. We are a team. Anyway, we're talking with Dolly Chu, and she wrote a book called The Person You Mean to Be, How Good People Fight Bias. Boom. Doesn't that sound like a book you want to read? I think I, yes. I can't wait to listen to you talk, but... I edited this, so there's so that. Did, so you did. So there's that. Yes. <laughs> anyway. My, what, my laugh's weird. Dolly is a Harvard-educated, award-winning social psychologist at the NYU Stern School of Business, where she is an expert researcher in the unconscious biases and unethical behavior of ordinary good people. And, you know, another really fascinating thing, and we'll get into this a little bit, is do you know who wrote the foreword for her book? Um, that's a negatory. Laszlo Bach from Google. That guy. Yeah, so we get into that a little bit of how, how that actually happened. Anyway, it's a really, like, I really enjoyed having By the way, I, I would love to know how many of our listeners before this episode knew who Laszlo Bach, I almost said Laszlo Bach, Laszlo Bach was. Well, I did. Well, that's and because you're a super nerd. I did because I'm also a super nerd. Anyway. But, you know. Whatever. Anyway, hit us up on social media and let us know if you know who Laszlo Bach is. Tweet at me. Anyway, before we get into that, we have a couple other things. Gosh, we do. We do. Yeah, we want to thank today's sponsor of the podcast, Sam Massey. We have a sponsor? I know. Sam created <gasps> the music. That you just heard. That you just heard. So if you have any needs. And are still hearing. If you, <laughs> it's currently playing. If you, can you hear it? I can. If you... Uh, need any audio work done, whether that be for your own podcast or for a commercial or a radio spot or for any background music that you may need, hit up Sam Massey. All of his contact info will be in the show notes. Just just do that. Now, before we get to our interview, well, my interview with Dolly, we have our Learner's Corner Recommended Resource of the Week. Which is what? Me. Again. Yes. I got you. So I'm all about this Preachers and Sneakers Instagram account uh-huh. because I'm a basic white dude. And <clears throat> I've been all in this. And there was a great conversation that happened on um, the Relevant Podcast. Yes. And it was a great – how far do you think you have to fast forward? Like to the, to the hour mark-ish. Yeah, I would say it's in like the last yeah. 40 minutes of the podcast. Something like that, yeah. And um, Caleb, I'm sure that Caleb will be on that junk. He'll let you know. But anyways, they had a great conversation. For those of you who don't know anything about what I'm talking about, there's an Instagram account. It's way over 100,000 followers um, right now. And it's an an account where this guy went in and (laughs) started taking pictures of very popular pastors. And there's even a couple pastors' wives. And uh, began to show pictures of their shoes that they were wearing and figured out how much those shoes would cost if you were to go on the internet and try to buy them. And some of these numbers are absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the the highest pair was a pair of red October Yeezys that were like 
over six five thousand dollars, close to six thousand dollars, and um, so that obviously stirred up quite a bit of controversy, and people felt some type of way about it on one side or the other. And um, one of our friends, Justin Herman, he actually did a podcast episode with him talking about this, but they had a great episode where they discussed it. They, and they brought in what's the guy's name uh, from To Write Love on Our Arms. Jamie that guy and so he came in on it and, and and talked because he was very much in the in the comment section of, of these posts on that instagram account and a great conversation i encourage you to go listen to it um also there's a great uh blog post article out by sam loose caleb i'll send you that so you can put that in the show notes um that also talks about it so go check that instagram account out and go check out that uh go check out that podcast episode there we go go check it out really interesting as we mentioned earlier in the podcast today, we were talking with Dolly Chu. And so here's my conversation with her about her book, The Person We Mean to Be. Let's go. Well, Dolly, we are so excited to have you on The Learner's Corner today. I am really excited to be here. Thank you so much for having me, Caleb. Yeah, you've authored a book called The Person You Mean to Be. And uh, that's mainly what we're going to talk about today. But before we get into that, um, one of the interesting things that I was uh, saw as I was looking into your book is that uh, Laszlo Bach endorsed your book, who is, you know, he's, he's a former senior vice president of Google. And I was just curious, you know, like what, what did that process look like for you asking him to endorse your book? Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for recognizing his contribution. Um, well, I, uh, this is how it went. I, I got invited to speak at Google as part of their rework conference a number of years ago, like maybe four or five years ago. And I had a conflict. And so I was flattered to be invited. I politely declined. And they kept coming back. And, you know, my ego was just through the roof because they they just kept asking me, is there any way? Could we arrange it? Could we change anything? Blah, blah, blah. And, you know, flattery gets you everywhere. So I eventually found a way to speak at this conference. And one of the pleasures of the conference, in addition to the attendees and the presentations, was that I did get to meet Laszlo and, in fact, ended up seated next to him at dinner at the at the conference. And we just hit it off and had a wonderful, um, from my standpoint, just a wonderful evening of um, talking about both work and like sharing sort of in the humanity of learning about each other's, each other's families and lives. And um, I felt very grateful for that, that interaction. So fast forward a year or two, now I'm working on my book and my agent said to me, like, who would be your dream um, person to write a foreword for your book? And, you know, my mind's going all over the place. I'm like thinking about presidents and, you know, Oprah's and people like that. And and then my mind just settled. It was clear. It was like, oh, it would be Lazlo Bach. He's the perfect integration of business and humanity. And um, he's a white male who thinks a lot about diversity. I mean, it's just a really great perspective. Um, and uh, he'll never do it. I mean, God, he's so busy and I've met him once and why would he ever do it? And you know what? You don't know till you ask. I, I sent an email and he wrote back same day saying yes. Wow. What, have, what yeah. have you, even though you've had maybe just a brief interaction with him, what, what are maybe a couple of things that you've taken away from either talking with him or being with him or even just learning from him in general? 
Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I, I've, I'm a fangirl of his. And, and so like, in addition to that interaction, I've read his wonderful book, which I, I don't know if you've had him on your show, but he has a terrific book called work rules, which mm-hmm. I really recommend. And those are into audio. Many podcast listeners are, um, the audio is read by him and makes it even more dynamic. Mm-hmm. Um, so in both his writing as well as his interpersonal reaction, I sense an authenticity, which I really appreciate. Um, there's a candor around stuff. Sometimes stuff works and sometimes it doesn't. And sometimes you get it right and sometimes you screw it up. And I really appreciated being able to talk about that in a way that was forward thinking. And it just sort of seemed to be like how he talked about everything, like how he talked about raising teenagers and how he talked about um, building people analytics at Google and how he talks about writing a book. And so the, I think that that's like a great model for how we're all better off is if we can sort of have that, um, you know, in my book, we talk a lot about this, a growth mindset, a, a, mm-hmm. a ability to see yourself as a work in progress. Yeah. And so, you know, as you were mentioning about your book, um, one of the things that that is present in the book is this idea of unconscious bias. And I was wondering, can you, um, people may be familiar with it, but just in case, can you talk about what unconscious bias is and what, what it looks like in, you know, normal everyday life? Okay. So what is unconscious bias? Let's, let's do a quick exercise first to help explain. If I say peanut butter, you say jelly, right? Exactly. If I say twinkle, twinkle, you say little star. Exactly. And what we notice is how quickly those responses came about. In other words, those ideas were closely tied in your minds, peanut butter and jelly, twinkle, twinkle, and little star. And you weren't born with those things sitting together in your head. At some point and throughout your life, growing up perhaps in the United States, those were cultural associations that were formed. And that's what an implicit association or an implicit bias is. It's some sort of association between two ideas that's sitting in our minds. We don't know when we learned it. We don't know how we learned it. We don't know how it got in our mind. And it may not even be sort of as, we might not be able to articulate it quite as clearly as peanut butter and jelly. Um, But what it does do is reflect some of our unconscious mental processing. And so in the case when we talk about things like bias around issues like gender or race, um, what we have is data from measures, newly developed measures in the last 20 years that allow us to measure those unconscious associations that show associations, for example, between black men and crime or between women and the home. And often these associations are not what people consciously believe. They don't consciously believe women belong in the home or that black men commit crimes, but some sort of um, association has been formed, accurate or inaccurate, throughout one's life, and it's now sitting in our minds, perhaps contradicting what we call our conscious um, beliefs, we have this unconscious bias that that's battling it out for our mental resources. And so unconscious biases are biases we may or may not agree with, but that are part of our mental functioning separate from what we would consider our conscious beliefs. Mm-hmm. I, I can see, and I've, I've even seen it in myself, um, you know, throughout my life at different points. Uh, I think it's really hard for us to accept our own unconscious biases. Yeah. <laughs> and so is there, an, is there anything that you've discovered that has helped us identify what our unconscious biases are? 
Yeah, absolutely. So there's a few things what we can do. I mean, one of them, the easiest of all, um, and, and this is what, I, let me take the back the word easy. This isn't easy for any of us, including me who studies it every day. I still grapple with confronting my own unconscious biases. And I'm happy to give examples of some of those if, if you mm -hmm. like, but the, the easiest in terms of um, the, the most accessible way to do it is if you have uh, internet connection in 10 to 15 uninterrupted minutes, you can sit down at a computer and go to implicit.harvard.edu. This is a research website hosted by Harvard University. It's free, it's anonymous. And what you do is you just go in as a guest, don't enter your email address or anything like that, and then you select from the test it lists, um, which will range from being about race or gender or sexual orientation or even some funny ones like IBM versus Apple products and that kind of thing. And you spend 10 minutes doing something that's almost going to feel like a video game. The idea is you're responding as quickly as you can to words and pictures that are appearing on the screen. And it's basically trying to figure out what is your peanut butter jelly reaction. Like what's your instant reaction when you're working at millisecond level response times. When you finish this test, it takes 10 to 15 minutes, you'll get a score. And that score will tell you your implicit or unconscious, I'm using those words synonymously, um, bias on this topic of race or this topic of gender or whatever topic you picked is X. Um, and very important to realize that X is not truth and it's not permanent and it's not the only way to understand yourself, but it is a data point at that point in time and you can take the test again. We encourage people to take it on multiple days, multiple times, multiple situations to get a trend line. So that's one thing you can do anytime privately with no um, fear of anyone else being privy to your results. It'll just get dumped into a big database with over 20 million other test results from others who've taken this. Um, so that's one place to start, but then there's lots we can do beyond that, and that's why I wrote the book, was to sort of give uh, people a toolkit, um, some strategies and some stories that are inspiring of how to discover where your unconscious biases might sit and what to do about it, particularly when, as scientists, we honestly don't have like a magic bullet solution yet, but that doesn't mean there's nothing we can do to build our awareness and try to change um, some things in our environment, and that's that's what I talk about in the book. Mm -hmm. So you also talk about how we can use our everyday ordinary biases to start creating lasting change. Can you talk about what that looks like? Yeah, um, it, it, what I call it is um, ordinary privilege, specifically mm -hmm. that, and I'm I'm I'd love to break that down. Yeah. What I mean by ordinary privilege. Um, so privilege is a pretty charged word in today's society. You know, if you bring that up at a cocktail party or, you know, happy hour, you're going to get some reactions out of people and mm -hmm. um, in, in all sorts of directions. What I wanted to do is sort of get more specific about what we mean and actually take privilege from being something that's accusatory or shameful to being something that's actually a tool. And here's what I mean. You think of us as all having some headwinds and tailwinds in life, you know, that, that sometimes some things kind of make life a little easier for us and sometimes things, some things make things life a little harder for us. And 
just like if you're riding your bike into a headwind, you really feel that headwind, right? Like it's very like, whoa, this is like tough going on the bike today. Mm -hmm. But then you get to the fire hydrant that's your turnaround point and you start going back the other way. And now the wind's on your back and you hardly feel it. Like you, you, you don't even realize that that same wind that was slowing you down is now speeding you up in the other direction. It's almost not even detectable. And that's that idea of headwinds and tailwinds, that metaphor, which I've stolen from Debbie Irving, um, that's a great way to think about privilege. It's that we all have different identities. We have um, the, 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 the race or ethnicity or the religion or the gender or the gender identity or the sexual orientation and the native language and the citizenship status and the physical abilities and the mental abilities that we could go on and on. We have all of these identities that we each carry around and some of them bring headwinds and some of them bring tailwinds. And the ones that bring tailwinds are going to be the ones we, we don't really think about. We don't really feel them at our back. They're the ones that we don't have to pay attention to. And that's what we mean by privilege is that there's, there's some stuff there that we just, it's a little easier for us to forget about that part of our identity. What I like to do though, is think of that, place where we have that tailwind, that part of our identity we don't have to think too much about. In my case, um, one, one of many examples of an identity I don't have to think much about is that I'm straight. And um, it's, you know, the world kind of, the world I live in is built for straight people. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's uh, at my kids' school, they refer to mothers and fathers pretty frequently. And um, the, and on my street, everybody uh, is a heterosexual couple. Um, and in my workplace, uh, if someone says, what'd you do this weekend? I know that I don't have to hesitate and think, is this person safe for me to reveal that I saw a movie with my husband? Like, it's just a very mm -hmm. ordinary part of my existence is my straightness. And um, the, there's, the heterophobia has yet to be really become a big thing. So I don't have to worry for my, my safety in any way, um, financial or physical or emotional. So where I have the tailwind, if we break this down now, where I have the tailwind, as a part of my identity, I have to think least about. It's very ordinary. That's my ordinary privilege. And here's where it really gets interesting. It turns out in that place where I don't have to think about it and it's I have that tailwind, someone else has a headwind. And what research says is that when the person who has the headwind speaks up, they are not taken as seriously as the person who has the tailwind. Mm -hmm. Let me break that down with an example. If someone tells a racist joke and a black person speaks up versus a white person speaking up, same circumstances, the white person is viewed more positively in that situation than the black person. Even if everything else is the same, that's what research shows us, is that the person from the targeted group takes more of a hit to their credibility than a person outside the targeted group. And this could apply to other things like gender and so on. So what that means is when I have the tailwind, okay, so I have ordinary privilege, but it also means I have more influence than I might realize. I might mm -hmm. think, oh, that racist joke, you know, it's not really my place to say anything. But actually, it might be exactly the place for us to say something. Where we have ordinary privilege, the part of our identity that's so ordinary, we don't have to think about it, and it's where we have the tailwinds, is also perhaps where we have a little more influence. 
And so that's the idea I'm trying to get across with ordinary privilege is to help us move away from this kind of uh, um, disdain for privilege and move it more towards a responsibility and a purpose and an intention, not to speak over or for or instead of people, but to stand by their side and realize this is an issue where we have a place in the discussion as well. Mm -hmm. Did the research show at all why people tend to view people from the targeted group as less believable and credible than people are not part of the targeted group? Yeah, some of the research did try to delve into mechanisms. Uh, some of it has to do with, um, and I don't remember the exact wording of the questions in some of these studies, but it was it, in essence basically getting at it being perceived as whininess. Mm. So self-interest, basically if someone has a self-interest in the issue, their their intentions are questioned. Gotcha. And so, so it's sort of it's sort of interesting if you just think about it from a like general like economic standpoint. It's like whenever someone has a self interest, we sort of assume they're going to pursue their self interest, um, when in fact, in this case, that may not really be what's happening. But that's the attribution that that's made. Gotcha. So as as you had mentioned, um, you know, one of her terms like privilege, and you know, even what you're saying with ordinary bias and, and things along those lines, it can make people get very uncomfortable and very emotional yeah. as yeah. well. And so right. how, how have you learned to have healthy dialogue in conversations around it? Because this is, it's not going away and yeah. it's not good for us to ignore it. So what, what could we do moving forward to have healthier and positive yeah. conversations about these? Absolutely. Well, so I'm going to give two different answers to that question. I'm going to answer your question directly, and then I'm going to backtrack a little and, and maybe like challenge the premise of the question. So, mm -hmm. um, so the first thing I'll say is I think we can have healthier conversations um, when we are willing to show and make visible our own learning. So one of the things I found to be really effective is that when I want to talk to someone about something I'm concerned about, um, some unintentional bias that I might be seeing in something they're saying or in a policy or, um, you know, a, a representation that they showed in some um, visuals or some presentation material. What I often do is make myself vulnerable first by sharing, you know, it's interesting, I consider myself a feminist and an egalitarian and I take great pride in crafting a syllabus as a professor that I think is very inclusive in the types of articles I assign and the cases we discuss and et cetera, et cetera. And yet I received, um, I've received an email from a student uh, saying that she was surprised I assigned such a sexist reading. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, what? are you serious? And, you know, immediately started mentally crafting my angry response to her and a, how dare you and um and then when I reread the reading which I frankly had read a million times because I'd been using that reading in my syllabus for a while I was stunned to suddenly notice for the first time how sexist the examples were you know these examples are all sort of were about like women as shoppers and things like that and I was like whoa I've read this a million times and that kind of sexist example giving was so normalized for me, I didn't even notice it until this student helped me notice it. And so I really appreciate when people help me notice things, even though honestly it's a little bit like maddening that I missed it myself. So I wonder 
if I could share something with you that I've noticed. Mm-hmm. So I think one pathway into the discussion is being willing to put myself out there as subject to all the same stuff that I'm noticing in the world around me. Mm-hmm. So that's one way to think about it. The other way to think about it is I'm all for healthier conversations. Um, and I will also say that we can't always expect the conversations are going to be healthy. And mm-hmm. sometimes we're going to have um, uncomfortable, awful conversations. And I talk in the book about heat versus light, uh, that this metaphor being the light, light-based conversations are ones that are more um, meeting people where they are and, you know, leading to education and awareness and um, a little more comfortable. And heat-based conversations or even other actions like protests are ones that don't worry about the comfort of the other people. And they are actually meant to make things uncomfortable and they might be confrontational. And what I was surprised to learn is that people who study social movements have found that social movements that have predominantly light or predominantly heat actually don't make as much progress as social movements that have both. Mm. And so it's actually, uh, you know, I'm more of a light person. I'm more of a healthy conversation person. But doing my re- this, the research for my book made me really appreciative that there's heat-based people out there, that they're willing to do something I'm not willing to do. Um, which is kind of push the envelope, and and that's important too. Can you think of any examples of maybe, um, I don't know if it would be protests or groups that have used both the light and the heat um, well throughout history? Well, the the examples I read about, I'm not a historian, so I I can't claim to be expert in this, but some of the Mm -hmm. ones I cite in my book um, that I read about were uh, the uh, civil rights movement, in the mm-hmm. 60s and 70s was viewed as having both a moderate and a, a more radical side. And that was one place where we see um, the importance of both heat and light. And what's interesting about that is uh, it's it's only now that we look back at Martin Luther King and he seems so, you know, peaceful and, and we're all sort of in, you know, widespread agreement mm-hmm. on his actions, but that wasn't the case then at all. He was viewed as disruptive. He was viewed as heat. He was viewed as moving too fast. Um, And so a lot of things that seem obvious and seem like light in hindsight are actually quite heated Mm -hmm. (laughs) in the moment. And so I think that's, that's another really interesting way to think about this is what, what in hindsight will no longer seem like heat because we've become so comfortable with, with the change in norms. Mm-hmm. So one, one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking about um, your answer to the conversations piece is I know that even, even myself and even people who are listening right now have either relatives, whether it's an uncle or a sister or a brother or even just a friend. Um, yeah who who does not who does not take like it's going to end up being more of a heated conversation than a light right. conversation that's right um, yeah and what what have you learned about like even obviously you can't control what the other person thinks and and stuff like that and how they react but how can we control um i don't even know if control is a good word but what can what can we do to do everything that we can on our part whenever it comes to those conversations absolutely um 
Well, one of the rules uh, or tools, I should say, tools uh, that I have gotten a really positive response to from the book is something we call the 20-60-20 rule. That's just useful to kind of have in your your toolkit for just those moments that you're describing. Um, so the way the 20-60-20 rule works is it's an adaptation of something I learned when I was a consultant. Before I was an academic in like chapter one in my career, I had this other corporate life. And um, I worked with a consultant named Susan Anunzio, and she would uh, help big companies go through major change efforts, like, you know, not, not about diversity or inclusion or anything, just like big change efforts that companies are always going through. And she used to coach the CEOs. The CEOs would be like, how are we going to get everyone on board with this new change effort? And she's like, you don't have to get everyone on board because here's what's going to happen. 20% of the people are going to be like, yeah, I'm on board. Like, this is great. It's the best thing that ever happened. Like, just, you know, don't get in my way and I'm, I'm ready to go. Mm -hmm. You got those folks. 20% of the people, another 20, a different 20, are going to be like, no way. No way am I coming with you. This is the worst thing ever. Um, Susan would call them comfortably miserable. They're, they're putting a stake in the ground that they're not changing. And they're going to be vocal about it. And then the vast majority of the people, the remaining 60%, she would say, are just actually not super engaged on this issue at all. They're just kind of, you know, going to let everyone else fight it out. And they're not um, paying close attention. They're going to go where the winds blow, if you will. And Susan would say, you know, it's 20, is it 20? Is it 30? Is it 60? Is it 50? It doesn't matter. The point is that there's three groups. And what I love to do when we have these moments of, do I have this conversation at the dinner table or at the holiday meal is try to access quickly the 20, 60, 20 rule in my mind and figure out what's the situation I'm in right now. Am I talking to a 20, a 60 or a 20? Because the strategies are completely different in those moments. And even the decision of whether or not you're going to engage will vary based on whether you're dealing with 20, 60 or 20. And so um, I walk through in the book a few examples and a few scenarios that allow us to see how this works. But basically the gist of it is if you're dealing with the first 20, someone who's like on board, but maybe just flubbed up and doesn't know it, that's the kind of person that absolutely find a private moment, share with them something that's on your mind that you were, you, you were a little surprised that they went that path. They will, they will be mortified, but grateful. If you're dealing with the other 20, where you have a sense that this is not an issue they're open to growth on, the, the pattern you want to avoid is getting into a spiral of trying to convince them. Because you're probably not going to, and you are going to wear yourself out. And you potentially your worst self will kind of start rising to the surface in your frustration. Um, and so what you want to avoid there is getting pulled into, and this is the same thing Susan would say to the CEOs, you can't let that 20% take up 80% of your resources and energy and bandwidth. But you also don't want them to dominate the narrative. So when that relative is, is taking on a particular perspective that's dominating the dinner table conversation, one path in that moment, rather than just letting them do it or now hijacking the whole meal with an argument 
is to use your sense of humor. Like those are great moments to be like, Oh my God, uncle, really, please. You know, you're so, you're so young looking. How can you have such old fashioned ideas? Mm -hmm. Those kind of little moments poke a hole in the narrative that's being put out there. And it sends a signal. And this is what's so exciting about that. It sends a signal to the 60 percent in the middle that wasn't super deeply engaged or super opinionated on this issue but they're listening because things are getting interesting around here <laughs> and it sends a signal to them that what just happened wasn't okay i'm going to poke a hole in that narrative but i'm not going to sink to the bottom with it and so then with that 60 they're the ones that you're going to kind of when you're washing dishes and it's just the two of you in the kitchen that's when you can start to engage in a conversation and go a little farther than you might have in that big public setting. And you can actually make quite a bit of headway if you're talking to someone who's not like deeply opinionated or entrenched on an issue, you make more headway um, using humanizing stories rather than data. So those are moments when we're talking to the middle 60 to pull out our personal experiences, to talk about a college roommate where we learned something important about a different identity or culture, to bring up um, an incident that happened at work that, that opened your eyes to the humanity of someone's experience. And so the 60 is the group that tends to be ignored. We're over, over attending to that other 20 and under attending to the middle 60 where we actually have a real possibility of impact and, and moving people to a different perspective. So I, another thing that I think of whenever it comes to these types of conversations is uh, these conversations don't always happen in person. Sometimes they happen on social media as well. And I'm, I'm just curious, you know, in your research and even in your experience, have you just, have you found that it's just good to not have these conversations on social media or have you actually seen like positive examples of a good like conversation happening on social media about this? Yeah. I mean, yes and yes. <laughs> right? both, both. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I haven't seen like concrete research on it, but I, I do have a story I can share on that and a couple mm -hmm. of strategies that I think are useful. Um, maybe I'll start with the strategies. Mm -hmm. So just like at that holiday meal, you don't want to get sucked into a lose-lose uh, conversation at the table. The same thing is true, I would say, on social media. But what we can do, and I've actually had some good personal luck with doing this, is, again, puncture the narrative. So if there's sort of this, like, um, comment thread that's emerging that's got a particular perspective, and that's the perspective that you might be tempted to go argue against and then end up in one of those crazy, like, spiral-out comment threads, the idea there is don't get into the argument back and forth. You're unlikely to convince the people. But what you do want to do is remember, most people on social media are lurking. Most people are reading but not posting. They are watching this comment thread and inferring what is sort of normalized and okay, what is sort of our accepted uh, perspective on this issue. And what you can do there is just like you could do it at the holiday meal is puncture that narrative. Just, you know, sweep into the comment thread, not to sit there and convince everyone and be ready to poise with your witty response and, and snarky takedown, but rather to just say something like, 
just want to jump into this conversation briefly. Um, I notice a, a perspective pretty different than mine. Uh, I bet there's others out there who might have a different point of view. So just wanted to, to note that. And you'll be surprised at how many little likes will start piling onto your one comment because there's a whole bunch of people who are now willing to very quietly make their presence known um, but weren't willing to enter the comment thread. And that takes the wind out of the sails of some of the the momentum that was building. Um, and again, this isn't like a win-lose thing. We're not trying to, to win with the most likes or anything, but it is important that social media not send a message that everyone believes X. And it, let's say everyone believes X, if X is something that's gonna marginalize big groups of people, and those groups of people are reading these threads. It's important that we send a signal that there, there are others of us out here who don't agree with this. Mm-hmm. So I do think there's strategies we can use that are not just the sort of get into a social media fight. Um, I, I call that strategy speaking to the hidden audience. So when you post that comment, you're not actually like your comment is not actually for the person you're responding to. It's for all the people who are not posting at all, but are reading. That's who you're speaking to, the hidden audience. Um, I will t- I will share one story that uh is, is to me a little, a, a little glimmer of hope in the sort of social media world. Um, I, I won't go into a lot of specifics here, but I'll, in general terms, I'll sort of share. There was somebody with whom I was having uh, some, some disagreements with on social media, and somebody who I, I like a lot in real life and really respect this individual for lots of reasons. And yet I was really surprised, honestly, at some of the differences of perspective we had, for example, on issues of like whether or not hate crimes were rising and things like that. And so um, I was using some of the strategies that I've just described to engage. I wasn't getting into big wars, but I was sort of, you know, noting when there was a difference. And then this person was someone for a while I was seeing regularly uh, because our our families sort of cross paths through an activity and then the activity ended. And so we really didn't see each other at all for like two years. And then I ran into him somewhere and it was completely by chance. And I saw him coming towards me and I was a little bit like, Oh gosh, I don't, I'm wondering, he, he looks like he has something to say and I'm worried it's going to be like some heated thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and to my surprise, what he did was say, I am so glad I ran into you. When does your book come out? I think I need to read it. There's some uh, things that I didn't really think about regarding diversity inclusion that I'm starting to think there's something to it based on some stuff that I've seen happen. And I can, if you could have seen my face, like my ice cream practically fell to the ground. Like I was just jaw dropped, flabbergasted. Because I, I will be honest, this person I would have thought was in the other 20. I would, have, I, would have, I would have mischaracterized him, which is the danger of any sort of little, you know, stereotypical rule like a 20-60-20. Um, and the fact that he had the grace to make his learning visible to me, you know, mm-hmm. to trust me that I wasn't going to um, be smug about it. I mean, I was a little bit smug about it, but <laughs> it like, I wasn't like, overtly smug about it. Yeah. Um, no, I thought he, he proved himself to be the bigger man. Like, it was just amazing. And it was not at all what I expected from our social media interactions. I was quite sure we weren't getting anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe there's hope. 
Sometimes yeah. we plant seeds. And, and some of the research I cite in my book says exactly this. Sometimes we plant seeds, we challenge something, we get a defensive response, and we say to ourselves, well, I'll never do that again. That didn't go well. And what the studies show when they do this in controlled laboratory environments is that the person's behavior actually does change after the challenge, but you're just not there to witness it, so you don't know. Wow, that's a great thing to keep in mind, I think, for everybody, because what you were saying, we want the instant change in their behavior, but sometimes mm-hmm. it takes time. It takes longer than we think and hope it will. Oh my God, I can't get myself to change anything <laughs> in my own self. How would I get anyone else to do it? Yeah. So another thing I want to ask you about um, from the book is how you talk, you talk about willful ignorance and willful awareness. Can you, yeah. talk, can you talk about what you mean by that and, and how we can move from willful ignorance to willful awareness? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Willful ignorance is meant to speak to the opportunities we have to see things in the world around us, but we, we may not seize those opportunities. So I think there's some like legal underpinnings to the term willful ignorance, and I'm not a lawyer, (laughs) so I'm not using the term in that way, but it's more like if you live in a world in which issues about bias are being discussed quite a bit, just in the national dialogue right now, you really can't avoid it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you only know your own perspective on that conversation. It seems like that's willfully ignorant mm-hmm. of other perspectives. If there's no effort being made to hear a different perspective other than the way you know the world to be, then that to me is not allowing other information in. The alternative path to willful ignorance is willful awareness. Willful awareness is I am going to like, you know, literally hold my eyes open. I'm going to open up my eyelids. I'm going to assume uh, this this wonderful saying, and I don't know, I've, I've yet to figure out who said it, but I, I love it, that I'm going to assume that if you think you have no blind spots, that is your blind spot mm-hmm. because we all have blind spots. We all know our experience more than we know anyone else's. And so willful awareness is I'm going to go figure out what my blind spots are. I'm going to go figure out some stuff that, that might not be obvious to me or might contradict what I believe to be true. Um, I'm going to, you know, if, if uh, you know, if this, if I think the workplace that I work in is a meritocracy and it feels that way to me, but other people are saying it isn't that their experience, I'm going to try to understand where they're coming from. I don't have to agree with it in the end, but I, if I'm going to be willfully aware, I'm going to at least give the possibility that there's some truth to someone else's experience a shot. Mm-hmm. What would you say is at stake for maybe, maybe personally for people and even um, as a society, if we if we just choose to not to not deal with this, to not acknowledge our own bias, to not uh, to not work on it, what would you say is on stack, both personally and as maybe a society? Yeah, you know, I think it's our humanity. Mm-hmm. I I think that's you know ultimately what we're talking about here is that when we um, when we see other people as individuals, when we see their pain and their joy and their 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 three dimensionalness, I think it also gives us permission to see our own humanity. We're we're able to tap into 
people's hearts and their heads in a very different way when we're able to let go of pretense. And so, you know, the title of my book is really intentional, The Person You Mean to Be. This is about this is about rising into our best selves. And when we do rise into our best selves, that's when we can see other people's best selves as well. And what we want to avoid is a place where a, a kind of tight corner, like picture a tart, tight, dark corner with no window. And sometimes we put ourselves in that corner when we say, <clears throat> if I if I am to be a good person, and most of us see ourselves as good people, according to the research, if I am a good person, that means I never make a mistake. I never confuse two people of the same race for each other. I never tell an inappropriate joke. Basically, you've put yourself in a good, bad person binary, where being good means it, it, there's no bias, there's no mistakes. And that's a tight corner with dark corner with no window because you know why? It, it doesn't exist. This mm -hmm. is what we know from the research on unconscious bias is that we're all prone to some unconscious biases. That's how the human mind works. And so the path out, the path to being the person you mean to be isn't to sit in that tight corner because then you just get defensive whenever someone threatens your good person identity. The path out, the path towards our humanity and towards, you know, seeing our best selves is, I've been calling it being a goodish person instead of a good person. A goodish person is someone who's a work in progress and is always sort of looking for ways to rise into their best selves and knowing that sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. And, you know, Laszlo, we started our conversation talking about Laszlo. I think he's a brilliant example of this. And um, it's a higher standard than being a good person because when you just learn that I'm a good person, I don't make mistakes, and anybody who says I am has obviously got this wrong, that state of willful ignorance is one in which you, 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 you get it out. You don't have to learn. You don't have to own your behavior. You don't have to get better. Being goodish is actually a higher standard. It's saying, well, if I'm a work in progress, then I've got to keep working mm -hmm. and I'm going to keep striving. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not only going to uh, notice when, um, you know, if somebody sort of calls me out on something, but I'm actually going to like try to find the stuff. I'm going to, I asked my TA to my teaching assistant to track uh, who I was calling on in class. I teach these big discussion based classes, like 60 mm -hmm. students, any given moment, 30 hands in the air. And I said, tell me who I'm calling on, who I'm not calling on, how long I'm letting them talk before I interrupt them, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, she came back and said, you're calling on men disproportionately more than women and you're interrupting women disproportionately more than men. Wow. Oh my God. Oh my God. <laughs> like what? Mm -hmm. Oh man. It took a week of like me kind of cringing in a corner, my dark good person corner to finally come out of that corner and be like, okay, the goodish response here is to be like, all right, what systems and processes can I put in place so whatever unconscious gender biases I seem to have aren't going to dominate my teaching protocols? And that's the power of being goodish is that we can start to notice and own and learn. And Carol Dweck calls this a growth mindset mm -hmm. instead of a fixed mindset when we can see ourselves as a work in progress. And I think that's what's at stake for us um, in these conversations is can we really be 
our full potential. And so many of us aspire to that. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you one more question about your research yeah. and then just a couple of questions that we ask everybody about learning. So, okay. so for the person who is, um, who's just thinking, I'm on board, I want to do something, I don't know where to start, what, what would you yeah. say is the first step? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you mean other than them reading my book? Right? Yeah, other than reading your book, which we <laughs> highly recommend. Yep. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm sort of half kidding and half not kidding because I think that one of the things the book does do is meet people where they are. Mm -hmm. And so, if, like, a lot of people are at that place of being believing in this but not sure how to build from it. And that's that's actually where the book began, begins. It's like, okay, let's talk about how do you move from believer to builder. Um, one of the strategies that I, I found people um, like and can implement literally same day is think about three names of people in your orbit, uh, maybe people in your workplace, people in your neighborhood, even in your family, three names uh, that you don't know how to pronounce or you've never been sure if you've been pronouncing right. Um, chances are the reason you don't know how to pronounce their names is there's some, some form of difference or difference in background or maybe ethnicity or race or something that's, that you're not familiar with the name. And what I have found is that when I'm in those situations, I say their name less or I even avoid the person because they're not wanting to get it wrong. And uh, a lot of people seem to report that response. Well, learn how to say those three names, and there's so many resources to do it. If you go on the internet and you just you type into a, um, the search field how to pronounce, and then you fill in the last name or any name, can be first name, you immediately get audio files. You just press click, and it says the name for you. Mm -hmm. And it'll even say it in multiple, because some names have multiple pronunciations or multiple cultures will say it differently. Invest the time, and we're talking about like, minutes is mm -hmm. all we're talking about or ask the person call their voicemail in the middle of the night listen to how they say it <laughs> uh, use all your tools to learn how to say that person's name and say it correctly and what you'll find is it'll lead you to interact with them more it'll mm -hmm. lead you to take the thing that may have been one of the first decisions that was ever made about this human being their name and it was probably rooted in something of importance, a faith or a tradition or um, an aspiration a family member had for this baby, that something that was of deep importance to them that we have not been giving its fair due and bring, giving it its fair due. And I think that's a really powerful act of inclusion. It's There's a lot about this work that takes time and grappling and it's hard and it's years and decades of our lives and it's a work in progress, this is something you can do today and you can check it off. Mm -hmm. So Dolly, we always have a couple of questions that we love to ask all of our guests. And the first mm -hmm. one is what's one thing that is helping you either personally or professionally right now? That's one thing that's helping me either personally or professionally right now. Um, I have uh, I'm not going to say their names because I didn't ask their permission <laughs> in advance, but I have a couple of colleagues and we have what's called a no club. Mm -hmm. And what it is, is that we um, email each other when we get asked to do something and we have some, you know, we're not sure if this is something that we should be doing in our career or mm -hmm. we're not sure if it's a fair ask on the other person's part or if it's something that has like some negotiation involved, we're not sure if we should be asking for more. 
And we use it as a way to help us avoid the tendency that many people have, including many women have, to say yes to too much and overcommit ourselves or to feel obligated to please the other person um, or to not negotiate. So the no club is our, um, it's both emotional support as well as tactical strategizing. And it's been wonderful. And it's two people I really trust and who um, I think we've had this going for years now and it's, it's saved us all many, many mistakes. <laughs> <laughs> I love that idea. Uh, what advice would you give to someone who is eager to learn? Oh, it's, it's fun. I mean, that thing with the thing, the difference between a fixed mindset and growth mindset is this, this learning mindset. That's basically what a growth mindset is. And that when we're in a fixed mindset, when we don't believe that we're, we believe we're really good at something, so there's nothing left to learn or that we'll never get better at it. So why bother? Uh, that's back in that tight corner. And I just realized, given the name of your podcast, it's so funny that I keep saying corner. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't make that connection until just now. Um, I love it. Uh, so the learner's corner should not be that tight, dark corner with no mm -hmm. window. It should be a big, spacious space where there's lots of room. And what Carol Dweck's research shows is that when we activate a mindset that something is learnable, Instead, that we move out of that tight, dark corner, and our brain activity literally changes. It's 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 a whole different mental ball of wax when you're in that mindset. So I think treating learning as fun, not as um, something where there are things where there's there's real stakes and where mistakes are costly. And so I don't mean to deny that. And it's mm -hmm. often more true for people who are not the dominant prototype in, in any particular area. Um, but that doesn't mean learning can't be fun. And I, I think embracing that is just exciting. If you could have everyone learn, learn one thing, what would it be? Well, I haven't done this, but I, I wish, I, <laughs> I hope I do before I die. And I mm -hmm. hope everyone else does. I think we should all learn another language. Mm -hmm. I think awesome. we should all speak at least two. Awesome. And then finally, what are you learning right now? Meditation. Yeah. Yeah, I'm two weeks into giving it a shot. It's been it's been not as awful as I expected. <laughs> <laughs> have you have you seen like it has it helped you at all? Have you seen a difference? Yeah, it's 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 helped. I'm well. I think yes and no. So I think um, the idea is you're not supposed to be attached to the outcome of it, right? Mm -hmm. So part of it is to not even worry about whether it's helping you. But I think it is helping me, particularly in, in, in the morning. I have an early morning writing habit that I get up at 5.30 and I just get right to work. And that's actually pretty good for my writing. Um, but it's actually not always great for my like mental peace of mind mm -hmm. to, to go from like deep sleep to like the clock is ticking and I'm working within five minutes. So this has been my way of kind of easing into the day with a bit more of a peaceful vibe. Cool. Well, Dolly, I know that people are going to want to learn from you, continue to connect with you and find the book. So where's the best place for them to go to do all those things? Oh, thank you so much, Caleb. Um, you can find the person you mean to be, how good people fight bias um, on Amazon in Barnes and Noble in independent bookstores uh, on it's on Kindle, it's on Audible, um, and I really hope people enjoy it. It was endorsed by people ranging from mm -hmm. Billie Jean King to Adam Grant to Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck. I, I think there's something for everyone in there. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for being on the podcast today. 
Oh, this was a thrill. I really enjoyed it. Thank you, Caleb, for all your thoughtful questions. Caleb, Jay, Mason, what was your takeaway? I mean, I think it, it was really just a reinforcement of, you know, how she talked about is that we all, we all are biased. It's not something that we can get past. It's just something that we need to acknowledge and then learn to work through. And so go do that. Go do that. Anyway, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. We want to say thanks to our sponsor for the podcast, Sam Massey. Yeah, Sam. Hey, Caleb, where should they go if they want to leave a rating and write a review? You can go on to Apple Podcasts or on Google Play or whatever podcast player you use. Well, how can I? There. That's what I was going to ask. Does it cost money? No, it does not. It does not cost any money. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, if you've learned anything from any of our episodes, whether it be from one of Todd's rants or from one of our guests. I don't rant. I talk from, loudly. Or from one of my thoughtful insights. You can leave a rating and please be sure to mention any one of those things in there as well. You also, go forth and do. Su- don't forget to subscribe to the podcast also. Yeah, do that. It's free. And um, yeah, so go do that. We're going to have more episodes coming out and it's going to be Lit City. Yeah, like next week we are Who are we talking to? Next week we're talking with, well actually, I'm doing the interview. And who's it with? Dean Nelson. There we go. And we talk with him about... Have I edited that yet? I don't know. So we've talk, we're have we talking with Dean, and Dean is a professional journalist and is a professional interviewer. And so we talk with him about how to ask better questions, how to become a better interviewer, and how it improves your communication skills as well. Get this. Guess who he's talking with? I'll just give you one person. Please. He's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. <gasps> is this going to help me get dates? It could. You okay. never know. Anyway. The best way to make sure you don't miss that episode is by subscribing to our podcast and whatever podcast player you use. We already said that. I'm reinforcing. All right. Fine. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode. My name is Caleb Mason. My name is not Caleb Mason. It is Todd Ixenball. And until next time, keep learning and keep growing. Deuces, y'all.